Welcome to the Crime of the Century podcast, where we expose higher education as a scam that it is. I'm Kevin Prendeville, and I believe that because of what we're teaching our children, we're losing an entire generation. Now, today is all we will be diving headfirst into controversial subjects, undaunted by political correctness. Uh, and today, we're going to continue the series that will lead us to the philosophical background that drives our professorship today. Uh, you'll recall in episode 65, uh, the American Revolution and the French Revolution, uh, to see the Lockean and Rousseauian versions of democracy uh, in action. And all of this started with podcast 61. So if you're just jumping in, you're going to want to revisit those as well. But today, we're going to examine the emerging American literature uh, as well as the Victorian era in Europe and the Industrial Revolution. Uh, for reference, this will be from about 1815 until 1871, and eventually will lead us to help decipher the background for the crime of the century. So, uh, naturally I didn't pick the year uh, 1815 just out of the blue. This is the year that the uh, Congress of Vienna was drafted. Now, uh, before we get into the mechanics of it and why it matters, um, there's something particularly in uh, Europe that, based off of the time period, uh, you can always tell who's in control or who has more power in uh, the continent just based off of uh, which city is getting the most attention. Now, uh, this phenomenon really came into being uh, with Louis XIV in France, and the power uh, or the uh, control for Europe, really, it was centered in Paris. You had a lot of uh, treaties signed at Versailles. You had a lot of, um, you had a, a lot of uh, brokerages going on in uh, Versailles. If, if not direct treaties, you had powers would mediate there. But uh, that began at the end of the uh, Congress of Vienna, which is the after the defeat of Napoleon, uh, the essentially redrawing of the European map, which had to be done by the great powers of the time. Uh, the United Kingdom was there, Russia, Prussia, Austria, and uh, Spain were there to decide uh, how they were going to redraw the borders of Europe after Napoleon had done so by himself. Now, this is where the uh, balance of power, or at least the power center in Europe, shifts from Paris to London. I understand it's called the Congress of Vienna, but Austria at this time, though they were powerful, Napoleon had uh, abolished the Holy Roman Empire, and Austria had become a noticeably older state. As we get along in our uh, timeline discussion today, uh, Austria is going to gradually decline. You had the dualism between them and Prussia in the 1700s, which we only briefly touched on in the last episode, but they had, by the 1860s, clearly lost that battle too. They were a state which was created out of old 
political unions and kingdoms and things that just weren't relevant in the 1800s anymore in the emerging world. And this, so though this was called the Congress of Vienna, um, the balance of power and the power center in Europe had really shifted to London, to the English Empire, which now controlled India, Canada, not the United States, but um, really had become the empire on which the sun never set. And that phrase, of course, comes from the idea that the sun would rise in England, and by the time it would set in Asia, it was starting to rise again in England. So the undisputed power was the United Kingdom. This also marks the decline of France for the longest time, and it was a slow decline. For the longest time, uh, really, again, starting with Louis XIV, France had was the dominant land power. They did not have the naval capacity of the English, and that was decided during the Napoleonic Wars in the Seven Years' War as well. But the French armies were the most modern. Obviously, they had one of, if not the greatest, general in history in Napoleon Bonaparte. And their manpower losses and their spend, uh, how much they spent on, on the uh, wars, essentially left them with no colonies and a severely depleted uh, general staff and uh, military personnel after uh, the Congress of Vienna. And this was not done in the same way the Treaty of Versailles would be done a hundred years later to Germany. Uh, it was just a simple fact of about 15, 16 years of continuous war would drain any country of its manpower and monetary reserves. And so the borders were redrawn with the idea in Europe and this was an English idea of keeping the balance of power so that not one nation ever became much more powerful than the other. So the Russians were given uh, much of what was Polish territory as well as the rights to uh, Estonia, Latvia, Lithuania, which were somewhat German nations. They were a... Uh, at one point for a very long time under Germanic rule, under the old, uh, some of the old uh, orders of knights in the 1000s. And so this was kind of an acknowledgement that the people living there were more, were closer to uh, a Russian ethos than a, than a German. But even though that Russia was given the, the most territory, they were still the most technologically backwards of any of the great powers. And Prussia, which had a very, very strong military, uh, was given some land. They were allowed to keep control of uh, a small portion of uh, what is modern-day Poland uh, called uh, uh, Silesia. The parts of Germany which were once part of the different confederations that Napoleon had created. Uh, you had little bits of those go to Prussia, but Germany was reconfigured. You had 
uh, a lot of the smaller uh, princes that were once part of the Holy Roman Empire uh, combine into little blocks of nations and many of these would uh, end up allying uh, Prussia and actually forming what is known as the North German Confederation. Not forming it as a formal state but it was more of almost like a Holy Roman Empire where they were designed uh, to protect each other. Regardless they were not they were on purpose kept separate. And you also had Austria gaining uh, much of the Italian land uh, from Venice and Lombardy and to uh, almost to Milan and this was done to, to redraw or give back what had been lost. Austria had owned uh, parts of Italy before uh, Napoleon had uh, kicked them out and this was done as kind of to uh, turn the clock back before all of this happened. Now the other thing that the Congress of Vienna did was an attempt to restore much of the old kingdoms and ways of doing things in Germany uh, in particular uh, before Napoleon. France itself actually was forced to accept a new king, uh, King Louis the 17th I believe. And uh, the Germanys were not uh, were no longer under the Napoleonic Code. They were not given the uh, right back to become a republic and many of them uh, were restored as monarchies. And this was done uh, by chiefly by Austrian's Prime Minister uh, Metternich who wanted to sort of erase the memory of the uh, French Revolution from many of the and its ideals from what happened in Europe. So again France went back to being uh, a monarchy uh, and many of the German states that were reborn also became monarchies. And this was really the first attempt at a military treaty attempting to influence a wider social change that it, was only, it wasn't necessarily a brute force attempt, but the ideas and the consequences made it appear as though uh, that the, the those in power wanted to retain the old power structure to keep themselves in power. That's how it came off, though it was an idea that these republics were starting all these wars and so in order to prevent the Napoleonic Wars from happening again, uh, we need to restore monarchies. But the way it was received by the general public by a forced societal change uh, ended up leading to, in the 1840s, what is known as the Springtime of Nations. And this was a revival of the French Revolution where the ideas that were presented and uh, really thrust upon by Napoleon on the Germanys, uh, the ideas of a, a, a republic, of a democratic uh, country. These became so prevalent that there was a general uprising in uh, both uh, France and uh, in Prussia and much of the German countries in an attempt to restore what 
this treaty, this Congress of Vienna had taken away. But the effects as far as the Congress of Vienna that we'll discuss here was essentially uh, uh, well done. The, 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 the idea, the balance of power idea, the redrawing of the map in order to not benefit one nation over another really did work because for the first time in a long time in Europe there was a general peace. There was occasional conflicts but they didn't last more than a year and a half to three or four years and there was a long long stretches of peace you had uh, after uh, the hundred day return of Napoleon uh, there were no general conflicts between the European nations from about you know 1820 or so until the 1850s um, you had of course uh, colonial conflicts and you had the Spanish attempting to restore their empire after much of South America broke away but as ter in terms of the European countries fighting amongst themselves uh, that had for the most part gone away but one thing that didn't change was progress in the sense that the Industrial Revolution that was sparked in England really which was a combination of both Enlightenment philosophy and much of the scientific discovery that we had talked about and the access to new resources, materials and the ideas of, of how to use these new materials uh, really came into being. So the Industrial Revolution hits and uh, factories where it used to be that uh, in these little towns you'd have mainly farming communities where uh, raw products were developed. These raw products were then moved into the cities where you would have your local, uh, it's not fair to call them peasants, but the common laborer would, uh, whether they were blacksmith or they were um, you know, in textiles, they would then create the, uh, the products and sell them back to the smaller markets in the little towns. Regardless, there was a demand for people to live in their smaller towns and, and, and in a world where there are no cars, it's all by horsepower, there was also a demand for people to work in the town that they were born in. You didn't have a whole lot of movement. Well, with the Industrial Revolution, now you can build these huge factories where they employ five, six hundred people and they just pump out uh, all sorts of textiles and raw materials and uh, later, not in the early 1800s, but later on they'll produce steel and they'll produce uh, these great amounts of things, whether it's uh, food or whether uh, it is uh, uh, building materials or concrete or whatever it may be, these new factories required employment and you're going to get those from the small towns. So you had these huge populations move into the urban areas. And I'm going to focus on England here because this is where the, the heart of the Industrial Revolution uh, started. And it became clearer and clearer that uh, there were people who had money and there were people who didn't. So you have the, the, the factory owners who 
put up the capital to build the factories, who invested in new markets because there was simply no market before them. They build the building, employ the workers to build the building. They buy all of the necessary machinery in whatever time period they're, they're in and they go out and then they employ people. Now this takes a lot of capital. This is another way of saying these people had money before they built their factories. And they employed a whole lot of people that didn't have a whole lot. And now we didn't have, there weren't the same regulatory structures either, of course. So you had child labor, um, there were no child labor laws, so you had you know, children that would work. Um, no, more noticeably in the textile industry, uh, in the earlier machines, you know, if an adult put their hand in one of those things, uh, it, you know, get mangled and cut clean off and you can't sew anything without a hand. So you'd have, uh, you know, children reach their fingers and hands into the machine works and sometimes they would still get mangled and uh, chewed up and it was not, industrializing Europe was not an easy process and it made it, it made it seem as though the older power structures, the old way of doing things where the nobility at the top had noticeable duties in society. You had the knights of old, which were the nobility, but they're on the front lines. They're the generals, but they're getting arrows slung at them. Or you have in the 16 and 1700s where they are running the country, but at the same time, you know, they are still generals and they are out exploring and they're bringing glory to the nations and bringing the people along with them. Well, now it seems as though they are just up there because they have all of the money. This is not entirely true if you look at the statistics in terms of they were not just wealthy people. They, they were investing in factories in order to grow their personal wealth, but they were not doing it to keep people in their place. Regardless, as there is in any organized society, there is a hierarchy and those with the capital were at the top. But as born out of these dirty London streets and this kind of rapid new world that was emerging from about the 1820s until really throughout the rest of the era, this created an inevitability in which communism would emerge. The man who happened to pen the Communist Manifesto was a man named Karl Marx. He worked with another German, Frederick Eagles, who also famously worked on Das Kapital. I, on a personal note here, I do not like communism. I believe it is evil. I believe it is the devil's ideology for the devil's disciples. It has killed an untold amount of millions. It has enslaved more minds than that. 
It has been the driver behind a world war. It has been the driver between behind a cold war. And it has been the driver between America and reaching the full tilt of the 21st century, which I believe is the final liberation of man using the Enlightenment principles. However, at this point in history, with the conditions in which our ancestors at the bottom of the hierarchy, the conditions which they had to endure, an ideology as radical as communism was not only an inevitability but almost a necessity to for those who did not have a God to believe in something. Now, uh, and on, on the subject of God, you had in the, really in the 1700s and beforehand, you had the idea of a philosopher and a theologian wasn't a whole lot different. That if you approached a philosophical pre uh, premise without acknowledging God, you just wouldn't be taken that seriously. It's why uh, Nicholas Descartes, or, or um, uh, I'm sorry, Rene Descartes, was not as well known as his own time. It's why someone like a Baruch Spinoza can be lost into obscurity because they're questioning. It wasn't because the church put them down. It's just to both the common man and the elite, it just seemed ridiculous. But after the Enlightenment, after the secularization of society, it became more and more common that philosophers and the social thought of the day began to move away from both the Christian and the uh, Jewish tradition and started to begin to abandon the notion of God. This was accelerated by uh, uh, Darwin, who himself did not go after religion and talk much about sexu sexual selection and how that was not random and would imply that there's some divine providence. But regardless what was discovered um, on those Galapagos Islands was still an attack on religion and the fundamentalism that had existed for, at this point, uh, a millennia in Europe. But Karl Marx was an atheist. He did not believe in a god. He was an academic through and through. He wrote his manifesto either at the pub or at the libraries. He didn't have a whole lot of friends. He was a man who's totally engrossed in his own thought and believed that that was enough to sustain him. He was in many cases Jean-Jacques Rousseau if Rousseau was a German. That 
he was the logical extreme of what Rousseau had started in the 1750s. Now, as we explored during the French Revolution, the idea of Rousseauianism, if you play it out and you abandon Lockeanism and you just go with a strict Rousseauian democracy, it's essentially, well, it's necessary to have a power structure in society, but we give people titles as a society only insofar as how we value people as the collective, so that distinctions are done by a collective that they are done by the people and the government is created to enforce the will of the people. The logical extreme of that and where Karl Marx is coming from is the idea that hierarchy and all of its forms is a power struggle. And this is because all classes are fighting with each other internally. Men fight women, blacks fight whites, the uh, rich fight the poor. Any discrepancy is the result of an ongoing conflict between two sides. And this conflict is unseen in most cases. And so in order to have a peace in order to create a new society in which that's not the case you need to destroy all hierarchies because all hierarchies are born out of this conflict and therefore you need to destroy all the ones with power uh, famously one of the final few lines in the manifesto is the last capitalist we hang will be the one who sold us the rope the idea the utopian ideas of communism are not grounded in any sort of economic philosophy or solid scientific evidence, but the idea that man's own intellect is enough and that he can rule his own society from the top down with no hierarchies and that if we just take all the money off the top, there'll be enough to feed the bottom and no one will be better than the next man. Now the scope of our discussion today will not go into any of the communistic countries that arose after World War I that will be next, uh, next week's episode, but this is the kind of Europe we are now dealing with. We've gone through how Christianity changed in the Thirty Years' War. We've gone through how philosophy changed for the first time during the Enlightenment and that reason and rationale became much more important than political and religious dogma. And now we're at a point where we've abandoned God, we are alone in our own intellect, we are alone in the world, and this is what we come up with. Born out of the social and economic ails of their day. Now across the Atlantic, there's this burgeoning country known as the United States. What was once the 13 colonies now owns the uh, French Louisiana territory and has just from Mexico won a huge swath of land in the west uh, and now 
through territories and statehood, owns much of uh, the most valuable areas in North America. Now, we discussed the birth of the United States came from John Locke, the idea that each and every man is entitled to their property, to the right to life and liberty, and that these rights don't come from government, but from a God who is sovereign, who has imbued men with these rights, and the government only recognizes what is already true. This ethos is present in England as well, and it's why these two countries are so different than the rest of the West. Germany, as we'll explore at the, at the end of this episode, has a very, very different political philosophy. French is Rousseauianism. Spanish, the Austrians, are still very steeped in uh, hierarchy and nobleism, uh, and, and the Russians are uh, somewhat involved in that, although the Russians have their own unique thing going on with uh, the different czars, but that's another topic for another day. Regardless, England and the United States philosophically and what they believe and what their governments do for their civilians has nothing to do with enforcing the will of the people and everything to do with allowing the general public to do what they will with their life so long as it's within the social contract. Born out of this is maybe the most unique literary style in the English-speaking world, and it's the American writers that arose in the antebellum period just before the Civil War. Uh, one of the most interesting writers, and somebody who I, uh, I wanted to, to spotlight here, uh, you could have chose many, whether it's uh, Ralph Waldo Emerson or Walt Whitman, who we're going to mention, um, the, the, the writers that came out of the 18, mid-1800s in the United States came after a period of religious revival. They came after a period of, of victory that the United States was becoming, beginning to really feel itself as a country. We had just successfully beaten uh, the Mexican government. We had, though we technically, I suppose, lost the War of 1812, uh, we had fought the British off twice. We had gained a huge, huge swath of territory from the French. We had explorers going out west, and we had this big, big, wide open world to explore. And it just felt that each man was his own man. And the writings of a man named uh, Henry David Thoreau, who, if you're in the Massachusetts area, you can still go visit his palace that still stands uh, in Concord. And it's on a, a little lake known as uh, Walden. Beautiful, a really beautiful lake, a lot, a lot of woods. And essentially what he embodies his, through his writing is, uh, known as transcendentalism. Now you have, of course, uh, nature and uh, 
romanticism marked by nature, but with transcendentalism, it, it's it's a it's a style that is marked by natural science and what's observable in the world without abandoning the idea of God, hence the name transcendentalism. This has Catholic overtones, actually, surprisingly, but the idea is that we can see how good God is, not through acts, but through how perfect nature is. We can observe nature by simply living in it. Uh, Walt Whitman, who briefly dabbled in this sort of literacy form, or literary form, excuse me, he, I think, wonderfully wrote a poem called The Learned Astronomer. And I don't have it here, I, I should have printed it out, but he, uh, he essentially wrote that he went to this lecture and this astronomer is telling him about the stars and the huge vast cosmos that was just being discovered and the different locations of stars that were being observed as they had been since Galileo. And he went to this lecture and he, and he comes out and he just, he looks up at the stars and that, he said, was worth more than any course. Now it's put beautifully in his poem. It's put beautifully by him as a writer, but it goes to show us that the American ethos, the American ideas about how a country and how a people should operate are much more about individual liberty and discovery than they are anywhere else in the world. That the United States was truly a unique country. And the writers of the day were not always college educated. They were not always from money. Of course, some of the later, what is known as in the United States, the Gilded Age, um, which happens after the Civil War, a lot of those writers are more uh, Northeastern, kind of elitist, that uh, no, most notably H.P. Lovecraft, who create and, and write in a literary style that really is more, uh, more suited for the elites. But Whitman's audience, Thoreau's audience, Thoreau who wrote Walden, was much more about the general public. It was much more about inspiring the common man to go out west or to, to learn what he could about himself and about the world around him. And if the elites wanted to read it, they were welcome to it, but we didn't have the same aggression that you had and European literature at the, at the time, which always seems to be poking at some sort of, whether they're poking at religion or they're poking at government systems or they're poking at politicians of their day, the American literature is not concerned, for the most part, with whoever is in power. Because the general public, we can see, felt much more empowered 
because of the way the government structure was in the United States. Now, the other thing I, I did want to make a note here before we move to Germany and, and, and wrap up this podcast, because at the end of this podcast and the beginning of the next one, we're going to really see the beginnings for how this changes and for how American both literature and philosophical thought shifts. But we can't do that until we understand the setup for the bloodiest century in the history of mankind. U.S. colleges did not give out doctorates for the longest time. So if you wanted to become really a, a learned individual, somebody who was recognized by that by having a doctorate, you'd have to go to Europe. And many of the top universities at the time were in the North German states. And now you had the, the famous uh, Oxford University in London, or of course France has uh, uh, Notre Dame and many of the uh, famous schools, obviously, but many of the American, what would become American uh, human, uh, humanity teachers, that's the English, that's the history, that's your um, more earthy, less mathematical studies, most of them ended up going to Germany. Now, if we're going to cross back over the Atlantic and we're going to end today in Berlin, we're going to need to examine both German philosophy and we're also going to need to examine how this thing came together. So we're going to, we're writing about 1850 or so, about mid-1850. Uh, Prussia appoints a prime minister. Now they have something called uh, what is probably best known as Prussian constitutionalism, where it's not quite the English monarchy. The, the, the Prussian king still has a whole lot of power that he still decides and can for himself command armies, set tax laws, but they do have a prime minister and they do have a parliament. The difference being that the Prussian king can actually overrule both, uh, whereas in England the parliament pretty much dictates to the king what happens. Regardless, the Prussians hire a man, I say hire, appoint a prime minister by the name of Otto von Bismarck. Now, Bismarck was a uh, relatively, uh, pretty much an aristocrat, came from an aristocratic family, but had a very steep military background. And he was a political genius, maybe the greatest in German history. By 1850, he had and was indirectly responsible for the creation of the first Italian state, first true and powerful version of Italy, something we would recognize. It was not done out of love for the Italians, but Bismarck needed to do something and he wanted to create 
what had happened in Germany is essentially after the abolishment of the Holy Roman Empire and the German Confederation hadn't really materialized, the, the German people and the smaller princes essentially, especially in the north, not so much on the southern German states, but especially in the north, they really sought to unify themselves as a single solidified German state. Bismarck was in that camp. But you can't just go around disturbing the balance of power in Europe like that. Not only that, but the southern German states were certainly not on board. And uh, he didn't, though they could have beaten Austria, I'm sure, in a direct conflict, you pull in Austria, you could risk pulling in France, you could risk pulling in, though the English were friendly, you, they still may, if you're interrupting the balance of power, the English may intervene. Bismarck was worried about Essentially, if he pushed too hard, he would get crushed. He cares about the Germanys. That's it. So why does he care about creating an Italian state? Well, and he didn't do this directly, of course. There were uh, a number of different forces and factions in Italy who were uh, fac facilitating, really, the... the creation of this new state. But Bismarck was able to play each and every faction off of itself so that essentially they would stop fighting with themselves and start pushing and petitioning for uh, the different kingdoms of Italy to, to essentially create a modern Italian state where these kingdoms wouldn't lose power insofar as that they would essentially become states. That they would gain a parliamentary system, that they would keep a king, but the powers and the regional conflicts in Italy would essentially, their, their, their anger and their power would be directed at Austria. Now, we mentioned after the Congress of Vienna, Austria owned Milan and uh, Venice, those two states, and Italy considered those at being Italian, and they were mainly Italians living there. So Bismarck was essentially able to direct that energy away from each other and the infighting between the little states as if they all unify, they have a chance to liberate their uh, citizens and civilians and add these states into a greater Italy. Now this creates an Italian state that is friendlier towards the man essentially who behind closed doors is the reason that this exists in the first place. So this will pull away power from, uh, we'll, call it, we'll call it France because that was Bismarck's direct enemy. He was worried about the French and that an animosity that had existed between the two countries really ever since Louis XIV invaded uh, Aslis-Lorraine in uh, the 1700s that the animosity between German, uh, Germans and Frenchmen over uh, border disputes that, that it could spill over and he couldn't risk angering France uh, before he was ready. And in order to get a France to a, a position in which the Germanys could actually defeat them, uh, they needed to 
isolate France. They needed to make sure that France not only was not only in a weakened position, as we had mentioned, they are on the decline, but that can be covered through alliances. So if France allies with Russia, or if France keeps their traditional alliance with Austria, that could spell doom for an outnumbered Prussia and outnumbered Germany's. The other thing that the that, that really faces Bismarck is the question of Austria. There are two prevailing German thoughts. There's Klein Deutschland, which is Little Germany, and there's Gross Deutschland, which is Big Germany. Now the difference is Little Germany does not include any of the Austrian states. And in some cases, uh, in the 1850s and 60s, it only includes uh, the North German states as one nation. Now this would be expanded to include the Southern German states, but essentially it leaves Austria alone as its own state and its own country to do with what it will. Grossdeutschland basically says that both Czechs and Austrians are Germans. They need to be in a Germany, in a unified German state, and Austria is itself an old kingdom that really doesn't have the right to exist in the first place, and therefore it exists only to be a state in a greater Germany. This thread will be more important, of course, one, maybe even two podcasts out from now. The idea of a Grossdeutschland never really came into being. But during the 1860s, uh, Bismarck needed a reason to essentially get the southern uh, German states on his side. And so he, uh, Austria had owned, there was a, it's called a Swesling in the Holstein area. Uh, it's basically the border between Denmark and Germany. Now, Austria and Prussia in the 1840s had uh, defeated Denmark in a very, very brief conflict um, that essentially gave, it granted Austria and Prussia um, uh, each took a little bit of land uh, in that region almost as a, a, a goodwill between the two countries that, again, had been fighting this, this dualistic nature between themselves for about a hundred years that had occasionally spilled into an actual conflict. Well, Bismarck used this, the fact that Austria owned uh, parts of Swesling. Bismarck used this as an excuse to go to war with Austria. And this was seen more so by the great powers as a conflict between uh, the Germanys, as again, just kind of a spillover of this dualism. And so both the French, which is what Bismarck had hoped for, and the English stayed out. The, the Russians as well uh, were dealing with their own uh, issues and keeping the monarchy intact. They didn't really care. The, and of course, Russia had just been defeated in the uh, Crimean War as well as uh, by the English and the French. So now their country was really ready for war anyways, and they let uh, the Prussians do what they will with uh, Austria. And this war lasts maybe a couple months. It's not, uh, it's not a huge war. Officially it goes from, uh, I think it's, it's mid 
1868 until about early 1869. Not a very long conflict. It was more drawn out by just uh, uh, how long it took to, to draft uh, the treaty. And now Bismarck was smart enough that if he took any land from the Austrians, if he made, if he tried to punish Austria, it would rally the southern German states around the Austrians, and it would rally the, the it would get the sympathies of the other great powers on the side of Austria, and could disrupt, could be seen as a disruption of this balance of power, and really put the end to the idea of a of a unified German state. Bismarck also realized that it could push Austria right into the hands of the French, and then he'd have a two-front war on his hands. So he takes nominal control of the Swesheling state and essentially does nothing to Austria other than to acknowledge to them that they were beaten, but he turned right around and within uh, and began working with uh, diplomatically with Austria in order to broker an alliance. This was not a reversal of, of essentially a, a, a stance reversal in terms of uh, Prussian politics that was done out of weakness, but more so done to extend the olive branch to Austria and pull the again, pull them away from the French. This would continue to isolate the French from any allies that they may be able to call on. And lastly, before we get into the uh, more philosophical backings uh, for this new state, we need to understand too that by 1871, the Prussians had uh, insulted the French in a uh, brief letter, and this really played into the arrogance of the French that still existed after the Napoleonic Wars, that they thought they were still led by Napoleon. And so this diplomatic insult that the uh, Prussians sent in the late uh, 1870s caused France to, in anger, uh, declare war and attempt to recover the West Bank, which Napoleon had annexed into France and which was now held by the German countries. And the West Bank of the uh, Rhineland is uh, pretty sacred to the German people at this time. But France declared the war, so they were seen, and rightfully so in this case, as the aggressor. A couple things this did. Austria didn't, had already just lost a fight with the uh, Prussians, but they really they didn't want to pitch to their people uh, as being the aggressors here. Again, they hadn't lost any territory, so the Austrian people were just happy enough to be at peace. The French, because of the already the animosity that already existed between the two countries, or two peoples, the, by the French declaring war, it was seen again by another, as another act of French aggression against the German people. So, as a populist, this got the southern German states, who were really trying to stay closer to Austria, to rally around the Prussians because it was seen as an attack on being German. So out of pride, the states rallied behind Prussia, which was just attacked, and they all came back and declared on France. And within about a year, the Prussians and the German states had not only taken back uh, Oslo's Lorraine, but they had marched all the way up to Paris. 
that the French were beaten rather resoundingly in the 1870s. And Bismarck was able to declare, because of this, this great fervor that had really swept the Germanic states, where they fought, they fought the French and they defeated the French, the, the hated French, but they didn't defeat them as, you know, they didn't defeat them as Saxony, they didn't beat them as Bavaria, they beat them as Germans. And the German people saw themselves as defeating the French as a collective, as the German peoples. So Bismarck was able to justify at the First Treaty of Versailles to the French that he was, by creating a German state, which the French had to recognize, he was simply enforcing the people's will. That the German people already saw themselves as German. He was just creating the state that acknowledged that. And he was also taking Alsace Lorraine with him and thus the rest of the Rhineland. The French had no ability to decline and, and were forced into an acceptance. This created a new super state essentially that went, that, that, that controlled much of Central Europe. And now the Rhineland at this time was industrializing like crazy. You had uh, most notably the Krupp family in Germany that were, it was described as as mushrooms popping up after uh, after a strong storm that it just dotted the entire the entirety of the Rhineland, very very rich in iron, very rich in steel, and these raw materials helped facilitate an economic growth in Germany and an economic boon that just propelled them uh, just light years ahead of the French who needed to import from their different colonies and even started to rival the United Kingdom. And this was mainly due to the fact that, that Germany could, even if it didn't have its colonies, Germany could for itself produce a lot of the raw material, materials needed to spark its own industrial revolution. Now, German philosophy is and this is the last point here before we start to wrap this up. There are two men who really define German philosophy, and that's Nietzsche and Immanuel Kant. And these men questioned God's existence. Nietzsche famously had the story about, it's called The Man Who Killed God, and he's the man who runs through the Prussian streets, and they keep saying, the general people keep saying that he's a crazy man, and that essentially this guy is saying that God only exists because we exist, and the general philosophy is putting ourselves before God, putting our own intellect at the center of the universe. That... Immanuel uh, Kant uh, was, I suppose to call him a militaristic philosopher would be somewhat accurate. He's, he's a man who is defined by a culture that, that cares deeply about physical prowess and military achievement and accomplishment. 
Regardless, German philosophy is brutal, it is tough, and perhaps man who does not define it as well, but would give us a very clear view into that kind of culture is a man named uh, uh, Richard uh, Wegner. Richard Wegner wrote, was writing in the 1880s. He was a musician as well as a uh, part-time, essentially an adjunct professor. His writings, though he died in the 1900s, his writings would become a favorite of the National Socialist German Workers' Party. He believed that every man lived for the state. So the only immortality that anybody has, he, he essentially, he, he said that there's no heaven, there's no God, uh, there's no devil, there's no any of that. Wegner said that what you do for the state defines whether or not you'll be immortal. And what you do for the state as a man is you go and you fight for it. And that you go and you go to war for it. And through your glorious death for the state, you become immortalized. That is a notion that is deeply rooted not only in Rousseauianism, in an idea that the, the, the will of the people exists in war is a very interesting notion or a very interesting take on Rousseauianism, but it also denies the individual liberties and individual rights of man, that, that, that the state, which is a creation of the collective, is the only thing that you live and die for. So you can understand how a culture like this that prides itself solely on the state and being German and identifying with the German and Germanic ideas of warfare and pride could create a culture which would then turn on its religious minorities. And that is where we're going to leave off this podcast in terms of, and the last point I want to make here, you could easily tell in, again, through Wagner's writings, but also through some of the other German universities of the day, that the anger towards the Jewish minority in the German nation was starting to seep into some of the newspapers starting to reach the lower classes of people, that the elites who had for the longest time distrusted the Jewish people were now starting to turn that frustration or distrust into a resentment that because the Jewish people were loyal to God, that the Jewish people were loyal to Israel or the idea of Israel, the German people saw them as a saw the Jewish people as a, as a as a a people with no state 
but they are loyal to that state, that they believe in a god and therefore they're against their king, that the Jewish people were this other. They were not German and they could never be German because of that. That they would never serve the state, regardless of the fact that many Jews were enlisted in both the Kriegsmarine and the uh, Wehrmacht, regardless, nothing happened in a vacuum. What would become of the Jewish people in Germany was not did not just happen because one crazy person took control of the state. It was a realization of the philosophies that had started in the 1880s. Now this is where, if you'll remember, the American professors are getting their humanities and their teachings from. So it's from here that you can start to see why the New York Times is and has always been slightly anti-Semitic. That the Northeastern universities had always been somewhat anti-Jewish. That the tilt of the American media who would learn from these scholars, that American academia would be tainted by a philosophy which was not shared by the general American public. Again, because the American public is more Rousseauian, this is evidenced in the writings of the Romanticists and the Transcendentalists of the day, but the American elites are more Rousseauian, and we can see that come and uh, be born out of the different states in Europe that are teaching our scholars. There's one uh, philosophy that we're going to discuss next time around, and that's uh, nihilism and the growing disconnect between humanity and God, and we're also going to discuss the war that bridges the gap between the old world and the new, and that is the First World War, and how that affects our perception of what was once held revered by the old world and the old order, and from that we're going to be able to more clearly focus on the United States and see how our ideas and priorities have really shifted since the beginning of this country. And all of this has created a culture and, and, and a, a system that has provided us with the crime of the century.